Hello, everybody. My name is Paul Daly. I'm the director of photography of season three of The Righteous Gemstones, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we're speaking with Paul Daly, the director of photographer of The Righteous Gemstones, season three. We talk all about the series, all about this particular season as well, and it is one of my absolute favorite shows, so I fanboy a little bit. But what are you going to do? Sometimes that happens and it's happening today. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So let's just dive right in because there's a lot to talk about with Paul Daly, the director of photography of The Righteous Gemstones. So I'm here with Paul Daly, the cinematographer for The Righteous Gemstone, season three, which to me, and I'm a fan of this show. I have watched every season. I'm obsessed with it. And I I came into season three with really high expectations and you delivered. I got to tell you that. So welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much, Ben. Nice to be here. This is the most insane show. Like every episode you think to yourself, okay, I know it's going to get crazy, But every episode takes it to a level where it's beyond what you ever thought would happen in that episode. You never know what to expect. It keeps you surprised. It keeps you guessing. I mean, what a great project to be part of. You must just have such a blast on this show. Yeah. I mean, it speaks for itself, doesn't it, really? Although I'm in the same boat you are. I get the scripts. I'm like, oh, my God. How are we going to do that? (laughs) Are they really going to do that? It's not really a monster truck, surely. It's like, yeah. It's not really motorcycle ninjas. Yes, it is. Snowmobiles? Yeah, we're going to get some of those. That's what it's like. I love it. Was there something for this season that you got the script and you immediately were like, there's no way this can happen? (laughs) Maybe there were many, but is there one you can point to that from the script you read and you thought you got kind of got that pit in your stomach like, what? How are we going to do this? Yeah, I, I have my doubts about the technique for the last two episodes, like, okay, swarms of locusts, you know, how, there's only so much you can do with VFX sooner or later. You've got to take photographs of this stuff. How do we do that? And, uh, it worked. We did it. So for those of you that haven't seen the show, and even if he had just a refresher, um, we, the whole season kind of culminates to this idea of uh, Baby Billy's Bible Bonkers, this TV show, this game show. And you know that you're going to see it as you're watching the season, but you don't quite know what it's going to look like or what's going to happen. So you're kind of waiting for it. And it comes in in the last episode, but it's disrupted by a giant swarm of locusts kind of taking over and destroying everything. Um, earlier, before we started uh, the interview, you were telling me that it's a, a biblical reference, which I, I vaguely know about. But I'd love to just hear from you, um, you know, what is the significance of the locust and then how did you actually handle filming that scene? Well, the significance, I'm not a Bible expert, but I do know that there were swarms of locusts in the Bible and all that type of thing happened. So it's very much metaphorical and then physical, it actually happens. Um, as far as shooting the scene, they actually found a locust expert, which was pretty interesting. It's an Australian fellow who lives down south somewhere. And uh, they got him on the phone and he said he can provide you know, X hundred number of these things. We need thousands of them. So we then started to experiment practically. We have Bruce, our uh, VFX supervisor, said, this is what I can do. And so effects, the physical effects, props and what have you, used half pieces of paper clips, 
uh, you know, clothespins, painted them black, and experimented with stuff through Ritter fans. And they wound up using like peanuts, like packing peanuts, and blasting them all over the place. And I think to great effect, it was really, really impressive. So it was trial and error, but it had to happen quickly, and it, it worked. We used a lot of interactive light, so it had to look because we're in a movie, we're in a, a game show set. So you need to believe that there's insects between the lights and the subjects. So we experimented with flashing lights, blinking lights, dimming lights. So it really looks like everything interactive. And I think it worked. Have you ever done anything like that before? No, I don't think so. It, what, what's tricky about it is you just don't get to see what it is you're making the effect of. You see, that, that's, that, that's what was challenging. We can do, you know, as a departments and crew, we can do so much. But without actually seeing locusts fly by, it's like, oh, man, is this going to work when they lay the stuff in? But it, it, it did work. So you're saying that practically, now obviously there was some visual effects to make it yeah. make more of them. But for, for practically, yeah. the, the objects that were flying around in camera were the packing peanuts? Or yeah. was that just, oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And those, I mean, to their credit, these guys experimented, they have fans all over the place. They blast them, we'd do a scene, sweep it all up. We can't use the same ones again because there's dust and crap everywhere. So they'd start again. And they'd reset in like 15 minutes. It's incredible. Wow, that's awesome. So the challenge that you were facing there, it was that you needed to have realistic shadows for all of these moving objects all over the place. And people, the, the talent needs to react to something. So you've got to have some physical physicality to it. That's right. Yeah. And they used, you know, for um, various tighter shots, they would glue like real ones on, on our, our people. And then the, the, the packing peanuts are flying by and then you've got the VFS aspects and the lights are flashing and extras are freaking out. And people are panicking. I mean, it really came together very well. How much time did you have to shoot that scene? We, we, we built that set on a warehouse and I'm going to say, I'm going to say we were there, I think a total of seven shoot days. I couldn't, I can't, we're certainly in that world. It was a, it was a big, big part of our schedule. Yeah. You can tell watching this season that the show seems to have really upped it when it comes to, um, budget. I mean, you guys, I mean, it, it's ridiculous how much you had access to this season. Although last season's, the previous season seemed to have quite a bit of budget as well. But this one, it seems like it was taken to the next level. The set seemed bigger. The prop, the set design seemed a little bit more elaborate. Was that, were, am I just sort of imagining that or is that the case? Did you have- no, you're, you're absolutely not imagining that. The, it's, it's, it's an expensive show. And I- believe that everything goes down the lens that, that you can see where the money's spent i think you, you, you've hit it on the head the production designer richard wright she, you know speaks for himself it's phenomenal and he was a dp himself which makes things very interesting because he's thought about these sets for a long time designed them made models so in his head he knows where the master is he knows how it's going to be covered so it's the stuff is always fantastic to shoot it's it's a really really excellently production designed show it's all production design really well wardrobe obviously but you know what i mean i want to talk to you about the theme of this season of kind of the kids coming into their own there's 
the whole season is sort of based around the father has kind of given up control a little bit. The kids have gained control, but they don't know what they're doing. And it's their constant reliance on their dad's approval and their dad's guidance. And throughout yeah. the season, a lot of mistakes are made, but eventually they kind of find themselves. And mm -hmm. I'm curious to see if there's something that you did in the lighting or in the cinematography that uh, paralleled the growth of the kids throughout their story arc. Yeah, 100%. So I don't think it's wrong to say that this season was about Judy and BJ's relationship. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny, but it gets very dark. And then it gets super awkward and then it gets super uncomfortable. And there, there are some things that's just, there's nothing funny about it. It's like, this is horrible. This guy's completely humiliated. He's cuckolded. He's embarrassed. He gets his ass kicked. And we shoot it that way. We it's we don't we let the actors bring the comedy. We bring the drama. And I, I spoke to Jody at length about that. He said, "Let's do it." So we did. And I think it. I think it looks that way. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, can you talk to me a little bit more about kind of maybe the way that like were the, were there changes throughout the season throughout the story arc in framing or focal lengths or just the way that you approached filming that sort of lended itself to not just, you know, Judy, but um, in her relationship, but kind of the whole cast of characters with the three kids. Yeah. So the uh, so Michael Simmons, I, I, Michael Simmons was the director of photography that I took over from. So Mike sort of established a, a, you know, a beautiful look. So when we got to season three, my thought was, well, let's change it up a little bit. Nothing revolutionary, just make it evolutionary. Um, my uh, stuff that really inspires me are like late 60s and 70s British and American films. So one particular film is a film called The Ipcross File, which is an old Michael Caine picture. Hmm. And it was the first film I ever saw when I realized something was different, the way it was shot. So I asked the camera operators to watch that show, that movie, and uh, we used that as our reference. Not often our, our overs don't always match our masters are short-sided um we're wide and close we're never telephoto that kind of thing nothing nothing groundbreaking just a, a gentle shift that's all and i think it's also interesting too in this season because the first two seasons you're establishing the church as it is you're learning yeah. about the father you're learning about the um you know his wife that passed away but there's a change in leadership and with that comes a couple of new sets and just kind of new designs. And there's like a different kind of slickness to it. Like the, the I don't know, for lack of a better term, I guess the conference room where the kids sit and they have their big murals behind them and all that. So you're introducing kind of a new way of managing the church and envisioning the church. And I think with that came some changes in cinematography. So it's interesting to hear your references of how you how you got there. Why did you think that that film applied so much to what you wanted to do? Well, because the the film, The Ipcris File, is about a reluctant spy. who's Michael Caine, and he's, he's sort of an anti-hero. Um, um, our show is, like you said, is sort of changing of the guard. And the way Richard builds his sets high ceilings, um, beautiful uh, light fixtures, incredible freezes behind them. Most things are three-dimensional freezes. You know? Those um, are real? Yeah, that's all real. That's all real. So cameras on the floor. Um, 
which lends itself to exactly what I'm talking about. We're shooting, we're shooting large format. So your wide shots are magnificent. You know, your frames half again is big. Um, everything we do, everything I should say Richard does, lends itself to how we photograph it. It, was, it kind of photographs itself, to be honest. It's like, look at this. It's beautiful. And then the reverse with the, 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 the lit map of the world. Is incredible, isn't it? I mean, what a crazy detail. Who would do that? You know, and he does. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think your production designer does a really good job of understanding the qualities and the types of stylistic demands that this type of character, these three kids, would do. I mean, people that come from extraordinary wealth that lack a lot of taste and style and want yep. to want to have things around them that make them feel more powerful to kind of hide the fact that they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, right? Because it's a bit of a cliche, but money will buy you a lot, but it won't buy your class and it won't buy your style. <laughs> yes. Right? Bring on the girls. You know, like Judy, the, 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 the wardrobe stylist, Christina, just changed judy she just went from crazy to just a little uncomfortable it's always just a little bit over the top you know jesse his stuff is very expensive it's just not quite right you know just a tiny bit inappropriate it it all works it's it, it, i can i don't know how much thought goes into it but it's a great deal i can't imagine what they go through but well it's you cool. know the you know the thought that goes into the cinematography and i'm sure there are also things that you're doing that help support this idea that these characters liken themselves to these grandiose figures. Um, you know, I, I noticed a lot of shots that are kind of heroic looking up, but it's, in, it's interesting because I think the cinematography is like the way that they imagine themselves, but they're, the way that they're acting in the scenes are revealing of the fact that they are very small people who are kind of, it, easily embarrassed and it was really funny that you went with the type of cinematography that made them feel heroic the way that they envisioned themselves um i'd love to just get your thoughts on that because it sounds like obviously this was all intentional but what got you to that decision well i think it's it's, it's everything i say is going to sound everything's derivative right it's all been done so i think i i talked to the, we have four directors. I talk to the directors. What do you think about this? The key grip, Lee. This is how I think we should move the camera. What do you think about this? The gaffer. This is what I think. Let's change the light and let's do it like this. It was a very collaborative way forward that we did it. And I, I think what worked well was we frame the best shot we could frame and let the actors do what they do. Does that make sense? We didn't change anything to make it funny. We let them take care of that. We would just make interesting, cool frames. And I think that advanced the comedy. It advanced the absurdity, to your point, when something's going completely wrong, but it's beautifully framed. It's, it's, it's a bit more interesting on the shoulder and shaking it, which is maybe a bit more traditional, if that makes sense. It does. It's like it's it's more out of place. You feel the awkwardness more when, like, for instance, to say Jesse's in a moment where he is embarrassed. You're not filming him as though he's small in the frame. You're not filming him filming him from like up high and making him and really trying to push to the audience this idea that he's small in the frame and embarrassed and you still film it as though he's this grandiose figure and his actions tell you 
that he's embarrassed. And I thought that was just such an interesting choice because it was always, the cinematography seemed always from the standpoint of the characters, the way that they internalize themselves. It was sort of an interesting choice to me. Yeah, it's true. You know, that's that's exactly how it was done. It was, um, we all discussed it and that's what we did. It was, it was we, not me. You know, it was uh, super cool. Great the way it all came together. And John Goodman, you actually, again, you hit it, you nailed it. Ben, John Goodman, we always shoot low. It's, you know, we'd reference uh, Russian propaganda pictures. That's Goodman. That's that's the boss right there. And it, I think it works. You're, you're not confused about who's in charge, even if he's reluctantly in charge. I want to talk about the gear package that you chose for the Righteous Gemstones. Can you okay. walk us through the cameras that you used, um, lighting, lensing, filtration, if you yes. are putting any filters on there? How did you create the look? Look, um, we were large format. Um, we stayed with our original package, which were um, signature primes. Uh, what are they Supremes, the Aries? What do we use here? Hold on. The signatures. So we started with the signatures, the Aries, and then I brought in some Supremes just to change things up. And I, I the. And when, the, and sorry to interrupt, but when you say started, did you mean this season you began or you're talking no. about over the course of the three seasons? From, from season one. So Mike did all his tests and I came to a couple of them in, in New York and we looked at them and they're absolutely beautiful, the signatures. A um, little bit warmer than the Supremes. Um, with filtration, I found you can actually reduce your filtration because they're a little softer. They drop off the, you know, the bokeh, the background is so definitive. Nothing turns into a blob back there. It's a very, they're wonderful lenses. Um, what I found with the Supremes is they're cooler and they took the filtration a little differently. You know, the way they handled the soft effects or the Hollywood black magics was slightly different. Um, we've, we found that we would tend to drift for the daytime lit scene, whether it was real daylight or lit daylight, we'd, we'd lean toward the signatures. And for the nighttime stuff, we'd, li we'd lean toward the Supremes. And it just sort of evolved that way. And I, I think quite successfully. What was it about the Supremes that were just better suited for the daytime? Well, the Supremes would actually use at night. Oh, I'm sorry, I had it in reverse, but... Right, yeah, it's because it's sort of counterintuitive. They're cooler. Um, they, I just like the way they worked at night. We would we'd never shoot particularly wide open because we always wanted to see where we were. We never really wanted to be telephoto and we never wanted to be so out of focus you lost a sense of what's going on. Again, back to the production design, you just want to see it. But why? We'd shoot our tight shots, you know, on a... 35 or 40 that's would be in there so regular you know that's sort of a 28 on regular 35 yeah um i just think we just responded to them at night it just they were cooler a little sharper and they just i think lent themselves to night work a little better saying that I mean, the signatures are incredible if, if you made me pick you know either would work i just prefer the supremes at night how many cameras do you roll with on, you know, a typical scene? Oh, always three. Um, but then we'd have multiple units. Those two would have three. And when we were in the Coliseum, I believe we had 12. Oh, wow. Yeah. But we're never less than three cameras. Which is interesting because we don't always shoot three cameras. I mean, because as I just mentioned, we, we are wide and close. It just doesn't lend itself to multi-camera setups. So 
often with single camera and it we're scheduled that way the assistant director randall understands that's how we do it um the directors have no interest in cross covering and things like that we do it very traditionally and yeah. what did you say your camera package was for this lfs very uh, large format cameras yeah and the lenses we had from the supremes and the signatures everything from an 18 to a hundred or a 125 and everything in the middle zooms we had a couple which really really save those for the Col the Colosseum type stuff. Yeah, to get like punch-ins and, you know, get people's yeah. reactions. Well, yeah. I'll get a television look, like to actively zoom. We don't use a zoom if we were zooming. Yeah, we didn't use zooms as primes. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about your philosophy with camera motion on the Righteous Gemstones? Um, you know, we had talked earlier about, uh, you know, there were very purposeful angles to help certainly sell the production design, but also sell the characters a bit. But what's your general thought and philosophy on the motion of the camera in the series? Well, I mean, it's the same as everybody else's. It needs to be motivated. If it's moving for the sake of it, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the scene. Fortunately with us, everybody has some type of monologue. Everybody's delivering some crashing um, statement. Uh, and we have a particularly talented Dolly Grip, who we would all, his name's Philip Dan. We'd, we'd watch this, the, we'd all watch the blocking, obviously. I'd go over to the A camera and Phil and say, what do you think? Phil would say, oh, this has got dance floor written all over it. It's okay, let's go. Let's do that. And that's, that's that, honestly, that's that was how we do it. It's track, dance floor, crane. And, you know, Philip would be a big part of what we could achieve. Oh, that's awesome. Um, same question, but regarding lighting. Um, there's a very naturalistic look to this at times. Certainly in the church, it's a little bit elevated because there's a whole production yeah. going on. And in their conference area, there's um, sort of, it, it's natural in that it is the light in the room, but the light in the room is kind of out of control. So yeah. uh, talk to me just about your your lighting philosophy for the series, what was inspired by, and maybe even how it's evolved over the course of the three seasons. Well, I think um, for my, myself, I, I work with a gaffer, Steve Thompson, who's been around a long time. He's a very talented uh, lighting gaffer. He knows what he's doing. Uh, I'm of the opinion, if you if it looks like you were never there as a director of photography, then you've achieved it. Like Gordon Willis, right? You just it didn't look like he did anything, but it looks amazing. That's sort of the goal for me. I, I would rather... I, that you say, wow, good looking frame, but you can't really say why. That's that's my lighting. It's big and there's a, there's plenty of it, but not necessarily, doesn't have, I'm not making a statement with the lights. And then, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm picking that up too. It, it seems like, well, you also have the benefit of the areas where there would be wild lighting. There should be like the baby Billy, you know, Bible bonker set and the church set. And, and there's a lot of areas for, you know, event lighting, I guess, if you will. So you have those opportunities to play around in that field. Um, are there any particular sets or scenes that, you know, created a particular challenge for you by way of lighting or filming in The Righteous Gemstones that would be interesting to hear? Yeah, well, there's, there's a couple of things. There's something that's sort of interesting. Um, the, the gaffer, Steve, and his reading gaffer own a, own a, a lighting company. And they do, obviously, movies, but they also do event lighting. So they have lasers. They've got bizarre moving lights. They've got stuff you see in the circus, not necessarily the 
on movies. So we get this fantastic crossover. So we have really interesting mi mix match of bulldog lighting's lights. Do, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, that's really cool. So there's like I say to Steve, God, do you know it'd be really interesting if we could like a poor man's process, for instance. Um, we do a lot of it because there's so much driving, but it's difficult to do daytime convincing poor man's process. At night, it's easy. Daytime, it's hard because the light's pretty consistent. But what does happen is when you're doing 60 miles an hour and there's a bright sun and it's going through the trees, that thing's flashing, it's strobing. So how do you, how do you replicate that? So Steve said, I've got an idea. They've got this new instrument. It's called a domino. It's like the biggest moving light I've ever seen in my life. It's a thousand watt LED, which is big. Unfortunately, it weighs 150 pounds. So I spoke to Lee, the grip, like, can you rig this thing? He's like, yeah. And that's how we did our poor man. It's like blast the flashing light and a, a 9K on a crane. When, yeah, that is what's what's cool about this place. That's <laughs> awesome. That's cool about gemstones. Yeah, it's just like, I've got an idea. And those two guys are like, okay, I think we can do that. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. So for your driving scene, you're incorporating this moving light. That's really yeah. neat. I would challenge you, apart from in the monster trucks, I would challenge you to find the poor man's, which is a misnomer. It's absolutely enormous, the setups. But uh, you tell me which is poor man's and what's actual practical driving. I bet you can't. <laughs> that's awesome. Now, yeah. challenge accepted. I'm sure someone in the audience will say, oh, I know the scene. I'm going to send you stills. Send yeah, the stills. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I love that. So I, I, there's there's a couple of scenes that are uh, evening exteriors, and I'm always sort of fascinated with the way cinematographers approach this um, because everyone kind of has a different idea of the best way to handle evening scenes, the color of the moonlight, what's realistic, all of that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear from you about your approach to, to night exteriors in the Righteous Gemstones. And I certainly want to talk about Cousins Night. So let's, uh, yes. <laughs> let's great, get into it. Right. Yeah, that's a great reference. So Cousins Night, again, it's all practical. That's a magnificent, I guess, mansion, really, in the middle of the country. And where the uh, the banquet is and the you know the, the mayhem and baby, where Baby Billy does his rehearsal where he's trying to sell Baby Bonkers, that's a, just a beautiful like one wall barn, really. Everything's open. There's a roof and a fireplace on one side. That was Danny's episode. He's like, I want to, I want to be able to shoot 360 and I want multiple cameras going. And I want to do everything. So, okay. So what we did, um, myself and we, I've done this before, actually, I spoke to Richard Bright production designer. I said, right, we're going to light this Christmas tree lights because we're everywhere. And we'll put those on a little chase. So they blank blink you could look up at them if you see them great if you don't see them great um you're looking out to a, there's a lake and there's lot there's uh, trees like on two or three sides so we lit from condors to trees we backlit the lake so you see it we skipped into the lake for for the walking stuff um it's really traditional but big there's no real you know, no no secret trick. Unfortunately, it's big lights and big lifts. Yeah, there's. It, it's always that conundrum of like, okay, if you're doing an exterior at night and the shot is wide, it's like, it's either going to be all black or you have to light back there. And then, yeah. you know, how you much light is realistic? There's only so much light that a moon can create in a realistic way. I don't think you have to worry about it. Just make the best frame you can. Make it look beautiful. I don't care where it comes from. Just, I, I want detail back there. 
I can sell that as anything you want. You want it to be a street light? We'll put some sodium vapor color on it. If you don't, just leave it blue. It's and if it's if it doesn't look real, drop a couple of doubles in it. We need is a tiny bit of detail. I, I don't worry too much about why the trees are lit. So you're thinking that, and obviously it's working because when I'm watching it, I don't have any reservations about it. But your thought is just make it look as good as it can. And if it starts looking strange, address that. But don't you don't have to obsess so much about the fact no. that it's lit by the moon. No, you or whatever lights are on out there. And quite honestly, Ben, if people are looking at the trees and not Edie Patterson, there's a problem. <laughs> that exactly. That's the right. issue. You should be paying attention to the talent. Right. So you, you, you understand what I mean. Obviously, I'm of course doing a little painting with a broad brush here. I think our night exteriors are nice. We work hard on those. They're beautiful. Uh, we, like Cousins Night, for instance, we, we are inspired by what's happening naturally. So, okay, this works, beef this up, slow this down, spin that around. You know, that's, that's, that's how we approach our, our night exteriors. Like when, when we scout it, when we're looking at it, whether people realize it or not, they are inspired by what's there naturally. So half the time, all we have to do is increase what's there. I want to talk about the cape and pistol scenes, which is just yeah. so ridiculous. That club is so dumb. It's it's just the best. It's like mm. exactly the type of club that these characters would be part of. Of course, I, it makes I, perfect I, sense, right? I love it. So first of all, tell me about, we had mentioned, well, I guess we can talk about it right now. How much of your sets are practical and how much are built uh, on stages? Well, just to reiterate, on stage, all we have is Jason's Steakhouse, the interior of Eli's mansion, and his office. Um, that's it. Everything else, everything else is real. Now, the, um, the room where the freezes are, that was built on a college. So that, uh, that, that obviously doesn't really exist. Um, Richard built that. But everything else, we incorporate what the locations offer. So the Cape and Pistol is the Hibernian Society, which is the most beautiful building downtown Charleston, you know, with a portico and circular staircase and crazy long hallways and high ceilings and absurd light fixtures, but surrounded by portraits. Every inch of the wall is portraits and you can't touch them. Oh. So it's like, now get out of that. You know, it's that kind of situation. What'd you do? Well, we... Um, Big lights through the windows. You can only come on one side because uh, the other side is we, we couldn't do it. Um, we put up a truss rig, which you know I, I'd have to talk to Lee, the keeper, about this. But I think we use more truss than anybody in the Western world because we're always in these locations, and sooner or later the light's got to come from above. You, know, you, you, you need truss. We don't have grids. That's how. That's how we. That's how we do it. Do you enjoy the practical sets more than a stage set? Um, 100%. If I never stepped on a stage again, I'd be fine. Even with all the control you get from a stage. That's interesting yeah. to hear. Well, isn't it? Isn't this the case, though? Like A philosophy, I think, of mine is if you're not careful, a stage just looks like a stage. There has to be something going on that it looks like you couldn't control. Mm. So that's how we work on, on the stage. Like I make something, it's four stops over. If it was three stops, it would be perfectly within range. Four stops is just a little too hot, but that looks like a mistake. So now it looks like you're actually somewhere. 
Do you see that, what I mean? I do. And that's really interesting. I don't think we've ever had anyone break it down like that. So are you saying that you'll you'll purposely put an imperfection in a stage yeah. to make it look like a practical set? Yeah. Yeah, huh. something's a little too hot. And Lee, the key grip, is all over it. So you want to double on that? You want to, nope. No, leave it. Leave it. That is yeah. really interesting. But yeah, it, but makes, it makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. Something happened when I was a, when I was a gaffer. I used to work for a cameraman. His name was Joaquin Bucker Assay. He was a really good cameraman. He's director now, I think. And one day, you know, I would call the stocks. I would call the exposure. I called filtration because we were shooting 35 back then. And one day we were standing in a, in a bathroom in Long Island and he put his eye on the eyepiece and he looked in the window and he put his eye on the eyepiece and looked in the window and I'd lit the thing, obviously. And I said, well, what's the matter? And he looked at me and said, your lighting is better than mine, but my lighting is real. And I turned on a dime. I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm. Yeah, and that's, that's when I went from everything perfect, perfect to ah, let's do something interesting. That's that's wild. All right, so you're embracing the issues that could come. You're embracing the challenges that come from a live location. Um, does it sort of change the way? All right, so so this philosophy changes the way you light in a studio setting. Does it change the way you shoot as well? No, not really. You're, you're, again, our sets are full sets. So we, we, we build a house on a set. So we have ceilings, we have light fixtures, we have floors, beautiful parquet floors. Um, there's nothing you can't see. So that's how we should, we frame it. Find our best frame, then we worry about lighting it. That's how we do it. So I think um, the scenes in the living room when uh, baby Billy comes in and pushes the kid across the room and they all come in and baby Billy's, he's a little under, but he's got a hot streak across his belly. His wife, you, you know, she looks great. She's got a heavy backlight, nothing on her face. You know, we, it's, it, it, we want it to look like late afternoon in a country mansion in South Carolina. And I think we pull it off. Well, you definitely do. I mean, the only reason that I would think there's stages at all is because I just you know know enough about the industry that a lot of stuff is on stages. But I think mm -hmm. the average viewer would assume all of these places are real. But I'm surprised to hear how many of them are only because, I don't know, it just seems, and maybe I'm wrong, but it just seems like um, the, the control that you would gain by being on a stage makes things move faster. But maybe not. I mean, maybe it's better for the schedule to be in actual locations. What do you think? Well... Let's see. We, we never not make our days. I don't know. I don't know if it has much to do with speed. I think you just have to have a cover set. I think most people respond to a real location. I certainly do. I know it's tough on the guys. So everything's a pain in the ass. Everything's going upstairs. Everything needs a scaffold. Everything, it's, it's difficult. But this, I don't think it's deniable that the um, practical locations bring happy accidents, strange architecture, odd windows, things that you just wouldn't come across on a regular three or four wall set. Yeah, and I guess it's probably nice that when a problem does arise, you can think to yourself like, well, we can't move that window, so we got to work with it. Whereas well, on a live set, or, whereas on a stage, you could, you could at least make the case to move a window or move a wall. Yeah, well, we, I'd say, you know what, Pam Wright, put it in. Let's have it. We do that. Like, you know, the scene when baby, when um, uh, BJ and Judy are in the bathtub, do you remember? And the, you know, it oh, gets, yeah. gets, gets a little crazy. That's a real bathroom and a real house on the second floor. And most people would say, oh, why, did, why don't you just build that on a set? It saves so much time. It's like, well, yeah, you could, but it probably wouldn't look like this. 
And it, you know, it looks great, right? But you had to hump the dolly up the stairs, the, the giant pain in the ass. Nothing was easy, but it looks great. And you use that house only for that one scene and that's it? No, we're all over that place. Oh, okay. All oh, yeah. That, that's where um, BJ finds the phone and reads the message. That's where he's got the those crazy goggles on where it's... Uh, what is that? Oh, so you were using... So that was, the, that was their house? Like that was... Okay. their house. Yeah, yeah. It's Judy's house. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, the that, that beautiful staircase. Do you remember the scene where Judy cooks dinner for BJ and he just oh, got yeah. his outfit? And she's eating alone and he comes in on the stairs. And yeah, that's that's that house. It's a great house. Beautiful, right? Yeah, but it's a real house on a magnificent estate. And but all of your shooting was in Charleston? Or close to it? Yeah, apart from the um, NASCAR stuff, which was at Darlington. But everything else is Charleston or the immediate vicinity, yes. Well, let's talk about the NASCAR stuff. Um, mm. uh, the season starts off with... What, you know, it's the, the NASCAR stuff in the first episode is is really funny and kind of unexpected, but also works with the characters for sure. Um, yeah. But talk to me about that. How was it filming on that kind of environment? Oh, well, I mean, it's like boys and their toys. I loved it. They gave us yeah, a couple did of Did you NASCAR. get to ride in it? I didn't. I didn't get to ride in it, but uh, I did get to mess around with it. You put, we put cameras all over them and, you know, pull the body off and put mounts on, uh, the, um, best boy grip. Jack He's a, he's the master of car rigs. So he was just talk about killing a candy shop. you like going mad. So we did you know, awesome, like wheel shots. And that thing's doing 120 miles an hour. You know, we have, uh, cameras on the camera car is going as fast as it can. And it's, you know, it's like 85 miles an hour. We really are blasting around in that thing. It was, it was so much fun. I mean, I, just, I could have stayed there another couple of days, quite honestly. How many cameras did you lose? Nothing. Didn't lose any on that one, but I did lose one. Did you hear about it? No. Oh, God. Yeah. Lost one on the monster truck. Let's talk about it. The monster truck scenes in the in season three of Righteous Jumpstone are just, it's out of control. You There's so much monster truck stuff. It's teased at the beginning. It carries through at the end. And you have a big... Uh, very satisfying scene in the finale episode. I think it's the final scene where the monster right. truck comes back. It's just, it's awesome. Just the way that the season revolves around this truck. And it's also kind of a metaphor for these characters because they just are so imposing and destructive, but there's so much heart to it. And um, I don't know. I just thought it was a really interesting choice with the monster truck. But regardless, let's talk about the way you filmed it and especially your uh, your story of losing a camera. I'd love to hear that. Oh, yeah, the UPM doesn't want to hear about it again, I bet. But, <laughs> we'll keep it uh, just between us. It'll yeah, be fine. Yeah. No one's listening to this, are they? <laughs> it's, you know, that monster truck is absolutely massive. And I, when I watch it, I sometimes wonder if we didn't actually, we didn't get a sense of how massive that thing really is. Um, it, it's, I think the thing will do like 50 miles an hour. The, the, the driver is in this tiny cage. He can barely see. He's got that halo thing on. He, so he, he, can, he does what he can. I mean, the man's a miracle worker, but he can't hit marks. There's just, he can get it within 25 feet, but that's really all you're going to get, you know? So we set up numerous scenes. Everything is going great. Um, if things get sketchy, we put the camera on a, uh, a hothead. So an operator is nowhere near it. So, you know, it doesn't die. And then we just put a camera unmanned elsewhere so a white camera unmanned so we did one take everything was great 
it's the shot where um, the cow gets run over by the monster truck. Yes, yes. So um, I said, I would just put a, put a camera down unmanned. We put it down. It was feet away from the previous take where the bloke spun around. Uh, we're rolling. I'm at the monitors with everybody, and this thing's getting closer and closer. I'm like, holy shit. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then the frame is just full of black tire, and then oh. gone. <laughs> you know? Oh, no. Uh, I just looked at the floor. I was like, oh, oh, no. And it was, uh, it was like, it wasn't broken. It was trashed. <laughs> there was nothing on that thing. It could be salvaged except the card. The card survived. So we oh got the footage. Of yeah. all the cameras. Well, wh so what were you mounting on, on the cars themselves? NASCAR and also the monster truck. I, uh, the LFs. We, we, we use real cameras. We didn't, we don't use GoPros. Oh. Yeah. We use real cameras. Yeah. Um, the, on the monster truck, you can't rig to it. There's nowhere to rig. So we, we, um, they built a, a vehicle that was on, imagine like a mechanical bull that moves around. They built a chassis of one of those on that where our, that our actors can get into and then we could put real cameras on it. That's how we had to do the driving shots with the, the monster truck. It was impossible to rig to the thing. And also our, our actors can't drive it. Oh, that's so cool. Well, the yeah. season is just excellent. I, I absolutely love this show. And, um, you know, as we're rounding out our interview, I'd love to just hear from you what scene you're the most proud of. Like, when you watch the season back, when you watch the series back, is there a particular scene that you just think, like, I really nailed that. Like, that's awesome. I try not to think in terms of I nailed it. You know, we... We nailed it, sure. You know what I mean. But, I, yeah, it's a, it's a weird scene that probably no one paid much attention to. But my favorite is the scene um, when the cousins go and find Peter who's holding a meeting in like, like sort of like a Boy Scout shack when a guy gets the ear cut off. Yes. That's my favorite. So it's it, that's an actual place. It's actually a uh, like a hootenanny place where guys turn up and they play violins and you know, it's in the middle of the woods. I mean, it's an actual spot. So what we did was hang... Um, old-fashioned shot light fixtures, bowled them up with cool whites. Um, I asked the guys to put a big fan in the windows, if that's the only way to keep it cool, bashed a couple of great big lights through there, so something's always moving. A uh, little bit of atmosphere, um, very simple, but my favorite scene, I'd say. Wow, that's my favorite, cool. I think my favorite lighting, and there was really nothing to it, but I, I, I'm of the opinion that it was a very successful scene. Yeah, I I mean, it's it always surprises me and it shouldn't because you know, we've had so many DPs on the show, but whenever I ask questions in a similar vein, they always point to like relatively simple scenes. Like it's weird. I, I, we got a lot of people saying they love these small little dialogue scenes across a table and it's like when you, especially when you're thinking about large-scale films and TV shows and all the work that you've done to produce these giant scenes, it's always the smaller ones that seem to really stick with the directors of photography. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. I think there's something to that. It's like it's like Occam's Razor, right? The the simplest solution is likely the right one. Um, big setups, they're not that hard. They're just they're just big, and if you can capture a bit of emotion, that's why you're there. I think that's what most camera people respond to that's what i respond to if you've done something and the actor just brings it 
which actually I could talk about with um, BJ and uh, Judy. They got, their, their stuff got really dark. It got away from comedy, you know, and we lit it that way. And I would, I don't think they would mind me telling you, I would go to, to Judy and say, look, nothing funny about this night. Do what you want. Just giving your heads up. Just say thanks. And I'd say the same to, to Tim, to Tim Boltz. Like, hey, it's pretty, it's pretty dramatic. Thanks. And then that's what they would do. And not because I told them, but just because I think it was maybe a bit inspiring. You know, it, was, it worked very well. Yeah, it did. I, that those scenes in particular are really cool, and I think the the development of their relationship is really interesting throughout this whole season. Yeah, it just it, it was their season, really, wasn't it? it just yep. uh, of all the cool stuff, stuff exploding, locust. It really came down to the intimacy between those two. She is a bit of a disaster, but she does love him somewhere in there, and he's 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 so weak, and yet he brings it. He brings some sort of weird strength to it. Bj surprises everybody. When he's so pathetic, even even Jesse's like, "Hey, man, I, I feel for you." And for Jesse to say, "I feel for you," I mean, that's that's bad. That's really bad. Oh, oh, here's a good scene. How about when they were training? Remember, they were teaching him to fight, and he said, "Oh, yeah, the bag." Yeah, that was really cool. We shot that in the Colosseum in the steam room, where where they, all the all the equipment to make the um, the ice for the ice rink is. So that's actually a practical location. We just hung a punching bag down there. And that's how we did it. No way. Yeah, yeah, it was oh, really cool. That. Like, that's one of my favorites too. I asked the, the prop people if they could give me some steam. So they just got, you know, the things you steam uh, clothes with and hit them behind pipes and steam going all over the place. That was great. We just, we did it very simply. And, I, you know, Tim does it. It's all, it's all BJ. <laughs> I love that. Stories like yeah. that are so cool. When you yeah. see things come together in such a like, Almost like a college film way. Just like, oh, get some hand steamers and let's just make this happen. I love well, that. You can, you can make it as complicated as you want, right? I'm sure they've got every trick in the book. I mean, it's, it's, there's no budget issues. It's like, this works and it's going to look great. I'm like, Go ahead. I don't care how you do it. <laughs> I yeah. love that. Yeah, well, yeah. No, I don't mean to be demeaning about their department. I mean, they've got everything under the sun. It, just, it looks fantastic. Well, sometimes the simple solution is the right solution. I love that. Adam's razor. We're back again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's a common theme with you, Paul. I love it. Well, the show is called The Righteous Gemstones. All three seasons are on HBO or on Max, I guess is the the new way we're calling it now. Um, And if you haven't seen the show, you absolutely have to. But my guess is you probably have if you're listening to this episode. But now that you've heard Paul talk, go back, rewatch some of those scenes. I know I certainly am. And how about this? Let's take Paul up on his challenge. If you find the scene that is... The uh, the pra- well, what did we say? It was going to be the practical driving scene versus. Yeah, see, you tell me what's practical. You tell me what's poor man's. I like I've that. I've already told you that the monster truck is poor man, so yes. that doesn't. So that one doesn't count, but the others do. So send us send us a message on social and let us know, and we'll see. We'll see. Maybe we'll figure out a prize for it or something, or maybe we won't. Just the glory of knowing you're right is enough. <laughs> so, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to have you back for your next project. What are you working on? Um. I think we just got renewed for season four. Yes. So hopefully, um, hopefully they'll have me back for that. I love that. Well, there's no reason not to. You did a fantastic job, you and your entire team. And thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Ben. All right, I want to thank Paul Daly for coming on the show to talk to us all about The Righteous Gemstones. I love this show, and I thought our conversation was awesome. Let us know what you think on Instagram. You can send us a message there. 
I want to thank Connor Crosby for producing the show. He's with Ignition Visuals at ignitionvisuals.com. And of course, uh, Dave Siegel for mixing, mastering, and making the show so sound so good. You can find him at SiegelSound.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the show, but see the show. So I encourage you to check that out there if you aren't doing that already. All things Go Creative Show at GoCreativeShow.com. And if you want to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, I am at Ben Consoli. I'm doing a lot with a band, Three Second Chances, uh, where I'm a musician and a singer, and we're releasing albums and music videos and all sorts of stuff. There's a lot of excitement going on there. And my production company, BC Media Productions. Uh, You can find all information about everything at Ben Consoli on Instagram. I want to thank you all for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.